Hi, I'm Madeline Hayes, and this is David Addison. Right. And we'd just like to take a minute or two before the show starts to welcome That's you back. That's right. That's wrong. Wait a second. I don't know why I'm here. I don't know what I'm doing here. You're here because Lou told you we to do it. We can say it. We can say it. The network says tonight's show is too short. The network says every show has to be one hour long, not 59 minutes, not 61 minutes, well, 60 minutes long, and we're a minute short. Great. Now the whole world knows. Mr. Thermopolis, and do you know Mr. Ehrlich, we're a minute I'm very short? Sick. Karen, get because my agent on the phone, fast. please. Not you because I'm talking, please. Because you're talking when I'm talking. Maybe we could have a show that lasts an hour. That's it. I've That's had it. That's it. If, if the, the producers want to welcome the viewers back, they can do it themselves. Cut. How's that? Too short. Too short. And you know why, don't you? Don't even think about blaming so much. But not because I'm talking too fast, because you're talking Start when the I'm show. talking. Start the show. Start the show. There are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. To look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. season replacement series called Moonlighting made its debut and instantly revitalized the career of Sybil Shepard while making Bruce Willis a TV star. Lots of firsts this month. Julian Lennon played his first concert. Mike Tyson KO'd his opponent Hector Mercedes in the very first round of his very first professional fight and people were not duly terrified yet. Uh, the very first internet domain name was registered. Today, Symbolics.com is just a placeholder noting its historic significance and a front door to an internet museum. Back then, porn. And finally, as Konstantin Chernenko was laid to rest, Mikhail Gorbachev took his place as Soviet General Secretary, ushering in a new era in the Cold War and keeping things interesting in March of 1985. Hi, everybody. I'm Drew McWaney. I am the co-host of 80s All Over. Welcome. And as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Scott Weinberg. What's up, buddy? Hello, and welcome to 80s All Over, or as I like to call it, a compilation of mistakes we made on the last episode. Scott, did you watch Moonlighting when it first was on the air? I did. Moonlighting was one of the shows we talked about in school the next day. It was a big deal. It seems crazy that the first internet website was the same month as Moonlighting. That doesn't line up for me. Like, You, you know, what's strange to me is that a lot of women are gravitating towards our show these days. I think it's because... There aren't many podcasts that open up with two white guys openly admitting all the mistakes they're making. Oh, oops, <laughs> oops, upside your head, say oops, upside your head. Say oops, 
we are we are willing to uh, give you the laundry list every month. And uh, this month we have three, one of which is a film we missed. But first, a real easy one. And I just caught it as I was listening to the episode. You were talking about Witness and you referred to the Academy Award winning score by Maurice Jarre. That was a nominated score, of course. He won the year before for Passage to India. It was Out of Africa that won Best Score that year. During our review of Into the Night, I mistook Veer Miles and Verna Bloom, probably because they're both actresses of the approximate same age and their names began with V. But the reason matters not. It was an error (laughs) and therefore should be rectified. My apologies to fans of both Veer Miles and Verna Bloom. The last thing we're going to catch is an August 1984 release. This is an easy movie for us to have missed. It is a Canadian action comedy that sat on a shelf for a while. It is eminently forgettable. It's called High Point. Stars, this is not a bad combo. Christopher Plummer and Richard Harris. Who embezzles a bunch of money from a rich family, and then there's a caper as they try to catch him and get the money back, and he tries to stay away from them. And it's all meant to be charming and light and funny, and none of it is. Beverly D'Angelo is also in the film. Peter Donat, Saul Rubinek, Maury Chaikin. That's how you know it's Canadian. Well, and not <laughs> only is it Canadian, but this is why it's notable. This is the movie that basically invented the Canadian tax break. And so there's a lot of Toronto in this movie, including the Toronto Tower, which Dar Robinson jumps off of at one point. And you would think Dar Robinson, a giant tower, that's going to be an amazing stunt, perfectly filmed. No, they even bungle that. So there we go. We got it. High point. Drew. Yes. There's a trend that happened throughout the 80s. (laughs) And here's the thing. I was just slightly too old to be suckered by this. All right. I have a problem with characters that were created by American Greetings, for example, and they were toys before they were ever cartoons, and they were horrible. I am, of course, talking about the Care Bears and He-Man, both of whom got their theatrical release debut this year. Let us start with... It's the Care Bears movie. You can share our adventure as we journey to a strange land to meet new friends, the Care Bear Cousins. But take care. Evil spells are out to steal our hearts so we can't care anymore. There's magic and mystery. There's courage and caring. Be careful. As we set out to show that caring can save the world in the Care Bears movie. Coming soon to a theater near you. I get so depressed when I see these movies, man. The Care Bears was produced by a company that we both had nice things to say about in the past, a Canadian company named Nelvana. But it seems like the Care Bears came along at the exact right moment. And it's a weird devil's deal because Don Bluth had this happen to him, too. And you can get into it for the best reasons in the world. Nelvana, certainly their early like television stuff, they were really inventive and they had their own loose style. They were a company that had a lot of ambition and they wanted to do things a little differently. This feels like they gave up because they were going to go under. And then this came along this property. The animation is not particularly good. The most discouraging thing is knowing how many really interesting, talented, smart filmmakers just got eaten by the system and never got to make movies that they liked. They kept the company afloat, but then they got rooked into basically doing TV specials and this and very little else. Here's my biggest thing is I don't really get the rules of the Care Bear world. I don't get how their magic powers work. I don't think the film particularly explains it well. I think if you're a little kid and you watch it, beams come out of them and then people are happy. And that's enough, man. It's fine for little tiny children. But movies that speak to anybody beyond a passive audience also have to do other things. This movie doesn't even try. I really don't feel like this makes any attempt to connect to an audience who's not five and stuck in front of it. Because beams come out of their yellow tummy. Drew (laughs) thinks these movies are dummy. I don't understand what the Care Bear does. When you look at a TV commercial for a Care Bear's toy, you don't expect 
top tier animation because it's a 30 second TV spot. You don't want to watch that for 80 minutes. You, you barely want to watch it for 30 seconds. It's also very strangely dark in ways. The bad guys are creepy and weird and not weird in a way where I think it pays off in theme or story or adding an urgency to anything. Just weird. And unfortunately, Drew, I got to tell you, not only did the sequel come out theatrically, but so did part three. Yeah, I know. We got a lot of Care Bears ahead of us this decade. All right. Uh, we do not have very much from the following series. You know, if the Care Bears was made for like three to five year olds, then I guess these guys were made for seven to ten year olds. If I was two years younger, I probably would have fallen knee deep into the quicksand. That is. He-Man. <laughs> and introducing She-Ra, Princess of Power. His long-lost sister. He-Man, catch! He-Man and She-Ra, united at last. He-Man and She-Ra in The Secret of the Sword. I say this as a parent who sat through a lot of kids' entertainment. I think kids' entertainment has gotten much better. I think in general now, we make movies for children at a level that is much higher. And we treat children as an audience much better than we used to. We actually treat them like they deserve movies that make sense. My biggest problem with the filmation stuff, whether it's this or the, um, the Transformers one, these movies are incomprehensible. The amount of dense, so dense, insane backstory that they provided. And the reason it's provided is so that they can sell more toys because the more people you have and the more play sets you have and the more animals you have and the more costume changes they have, the more toys you sell. I get it. But it is cynical and it's not storytelling. I'll give you a thousand dollars and a pizza if you could tell me the plot. I can't remotely. I know that they find out their brother and sister eventually and they didn't know it because of magic stuff. And she grew up in one place and he grew up in one place and they've been having similar stories happening. It's so dense. It's just nonsense. It's the Star Wars universe, but they didn't do the due diligence of telling us a story. Uh, Elliot and Rossio one time, I did an interview with them and they explained it very, very well. They were in the middle of working on the Pirates of the Caribbean sequels. And they talked about the fact that they felt like they were starting to get lost in it. The difference between simply populating a world where you're telling a story in the foreground and there's in the background in every shot, there's distant mountains. You don't have to name the mountains. You don't have to tell me what's happening on the mountains or on the other side of the mountains. But the point is there's distant mountains. You set that up so that maybe someday you'll go into that world. When you're building from a toy box, you have to name everything, tell me what it is, give me backstory. It's a catalog. It's not storytelling in front of a world that I'm curious about. Yeah, and our, our He-Man and She-Ra aficionados will, of course, know that the Secret of the Sword movie was actually the first several episodes of She-Ra's new series. Cut some stuff down and release that as a movie. That bothers me, too. That's, I think, a really cheap move and an unfortunate trend that started to happen this decade. It just feels like your kids are going to watch anything, so we're going to make them watch this. I would never show these films to my children, ever. They don't give a shit about those toys. Why would I inflict these commercials on them? You know what other film you should never show your children? I'm going to guess it's called... Certain Fury. Nobody moves! They met in a crossfire. Fleeing for a crime they didn't commit. I just want a place where I can figure a way out of this mess. And if they can't make it together... I want you away from me. They may not make it at all, but they're not going down without a fight. And we know you're in there. You're going to do it, do it. Tatum O'Neill, Irene Cara, Certain Fury, Rated R. 
I wouldn't show this movie to my children, certainly, or my friends or anyone. Um, hey, so, Scott, uh, we last month encountered uh, Stephen Gyllenhaal in screenwriter form. Now he's back as a director. Is it any better? No. No, not really. Irene Cara and Tatum O'Neill are on the run after a ridiculously whacked out courtroom gun massacre. <laughs> And they do not become friends because it is slowly revealed how disgustingly racist the Tatum O'Neill character is. Yeah, Tatum O'Neill dropping the N-word in this movie was um, not something I was ready for. And the first few times she throws it out there and Irene Cara just lets it roll off, I was like, wow. And then when Irene Cara confronts her about it, it's a lot, man. I thought it was going to be like some really ham-fisted character development, like, nope, nope, nope. Absolutely. It makes me think, Okay, is this Sydney Pony and Tony Curtis? Is it basically just an updated Defiant Ones is what you think the formula is? But it never takes that third act turn that would at least justify some of the casual, horrifying racism that drops out of her. And although obviously both actors have been good in other things. This does not look like it was a fun shoot. They do not look like they're having fun. They are not particularly invested in these characters. It almost felt like uh, Angel Part 3. If you're going to do this kind of exploitation film, if you're going to do two teenage girls on the run and you're going to dude, pick a lane. Is it sleazier? Is it empowering? Is it about them coming together because they realize they're similar? I really don't know which version of it he thought he was making, but he didn't make any of them. Drew, let's move on from certain fury to another film that's also about inevitable anger. Chuck Norris returns in Missing in Action 2, The Beginning. American MIAs imprisoned and tortured. He's a soldier they couldn't hold. None of you have ever escaped, and none of you will. We're going in. He's breaking out, leading his men, and fighting back. An American hero story continues. Chuck Norris, Missing in Action 2, The Beginning. The first film and this film were shot back to back. This was originally going to be released first. The reason that they wanted to do that was to get ahead of Rambo. They ended up rushing that one in the theaters, then releasing this as the prequel. The story became they switched it because the sequel's better. I've seen both films. I do not believe your story. You think this is of the same quality, relatively speaking, of the first one? This is so clearly just a Vietnam update of the prison camp movies we'd seen a million of for World War II. And it's really not an action film. What, what I get from a movie like Missing in Action 2 it's really cynical, and I guess cynicism is the theme of our uh, episode so far. It feels like somebody watched a 1940s POW movie and said, wow, well, it's the mid-80s. I can copy this and make everything much nastier and get an R rating, and that's literally the only creative effort that went into this movie is make them gory and ugly. As Chuck Norris fans, I would put Missing in Action in the uh, top five. This is as bad as anything he's ever done. The real distinction between the two is the first one is an action movie and the second one is not. The second one is meant to be him in a battle of wills with this this guy that runs the camp. And dude, he is not a good enough actor to pull that movie off. That's never going to work with Chuck Norris is not a good enough actor to pull sweaty off. So it's not a big leap for me to say, uh, fuck Missing in Action 2. Drew, what did your dad think of this one? It's weird. While my dad loves Chuck Norris movies. My dad, who was a paratrooper in Vietnam, uh, was very, very particular about Vietnam films. And so I think the minute they entered Fantasyland, he was out. Do you think your dad saw the legendary Porky's Revenge? I sat through every disgusting frame of this film. Twice. Who could possibly want revenge on those sweet, 
innocent, totally harmless kids from Angel Beach High School. Porky is back in the funniest, sexiest Porky's of them all. 20th Century Fox presents the all-new Porky's Revenge. Rated R. You and I, mostly you, have made it a point to comment on the standout performance of Khaki Hunter in both Porky's and Porky's 2. Literally, Drew, I swear to you, the only reason I was looking forward to watching Porky's Revenge is, does Khaki Hunter salvage any of this? And man, they don't even use her well. Nope. They lean way, way too hard on meat in this movie, and he is not a compelling performer. If you describe the third act of this film to me, I would say you're crazy. This is a film in which a high school basketball team races time to try to rescue their kidnapped massive dong buddy from the sex-crazed daughter of the homicidal steamboat gambler whose nightclub they destroyed two movies ago to stop the shotgun and wedding he has planned. Jesus fucking Christ. You know, the second film, there is some kind of ambition. It doesn't work, but at the very least, they're trying and they try the big slapstick numbers with Khaki Hunter and the fake boobs and the vomit and all that. They try some social commentary. I don't think it works real well. It touches on racial and anti-Semitic themes that, while clunky, at least you can admire the effort. And it seems like for revenge, the producers, first off, relieved Bob Clark. Yeah, this is James Comack, who directed some Welcome Back Cotter episodes, never directed another film again. There's no laughs. The movie spends so much time with this elaborate joke about the girls are going to try and get the guys into the pool and then get them naked without the ladies themselves getting naked so that they can humiliate the guys who are naked. That's your big well, payoff? Ultimately, that's what I think the Porky's formula was, was the guys thought they were going to get sex and then didn't. And it was all the humiliations. And OK, that's a formula you can play variations on if you want to. And, and here's the thing that blows my mind is. Miss Ballbrick or Nancy Parsons had said she wasn't going to come back and do any more. She didn't really like the first film and, and she physically changed. She was a radically different person. If you see this third film, she's fairly thin and they paid her. She was, by all accounts, the highest salary from the cast because they were determined they had to get her back. I cannot tell you why. Everything they do with her in this movie is mean. And I can't imagine that she read this and went, oh, finally, she's redeemed. Finally. It's just more of them being horrible to her because she's a person that works at their school and, hey, let's humiliate her sexually. Let's bring back the love of her life and make it a joke and fuck her up some more. It's just mean and shitty. And I I don't like anybody. I don't think any of it's funny. I don't think it's clever. This guy who made this movie, James Comack, dude, he has zero knack for this. Drew, I'm going to throw this one over to you because, man, if I have to talk about one more wry indie comedy about an unlikable man who does something shitty and yet we're still supposed to adore him fuck it talk about almost you i don't know if i would agree that they were supposed to adore anybody in this movie it's a guy whose wife breaks her leg and he's out trying to pick somebody up when it happens and he uh ends up getting her a nurse and then hitting on the nurse the nurse's boyfriend is having his issues everybody's basically exploring infidelity that's what the film is the film is about people who aren't quite settled and have never decided who they're actually going to be with and Uh, This situation pushes them all into ultimately a dinner party where everything kind of comes out and gets played out and explored and explained. And by the end of it, they've all shook out into the relationships they're actually either going to have or end. Romantic fury. Yeah. Doesn't surprise me. Played Sundance. And it feels like an early model for the kind of film we've seen a thousand times at Sundance since. It's got the awesome Brooke Adams. Yeah. And Karen Young, who we loved, loved in the movie Handgun. This is one of the only other big semi-leads she has during the decade, and she's fine as the nurse. But again, Adam Brooks, who directed it, 
I can see what he's trying to do, the Mark Horowitz script, but I don't think Brooks or Horowitz ever gets it across the finish line. Drew, now we're going to get into a film that confused me as a kid because I had never seen the first three entries. Now let's talk about DEFCON 4. His name is Hal. He's been in space for the past 15 months. But World War III brings him back to a hell on Earth to face the day after the day after. Now, only he can save the survivors of his planet. The battle for the future of the world has begun from space to Earth. DEFCON 4. Rated R. Giant missed opportunities around this one. This is a, a Canadian film, and it has a great premise. There's lots of ways, like, a Philip K. Dick-type screenwriter could do a lot with that premise. They quickly throw that out the window, and it becomes, like, a 14th-generation Exterminators of the Year 4000 movie. This is Tony Randall, not odd couple Tony Randall, but R-A-N-D-E-L, who directed this. And in his next film, the Hellraiser sequel, I will argue he does an amazing job with a very low budget to create a world. Spoiler Drew and I both love Hellbound. Yeah. So it's weird. This is knowing that he can do that. It looks like nobody even gave him the chance here. There's very little attempt to set the context for what we're watching. We have to do a sidebar on Christopher Young. What an alchemist. It is astonishing what a good score can do for something that is this amazingly grungy and cheap. Christopher Young is one of the best genre composers ever. And I think a deeply underrated guy, a guy who a lot of people don't know by name, but whose work has absolutely enhanced things you've watched and who I think does a terrific job of vanishing into each project. You don't hear him. You just hear what's right for the movie. Um, hey, let's move on to something that hopefully is going to be more entertaining because, boy, it's a drag so far in March. Scott, can you tell me about Lust in the Dust? The heroes and outlaws, the good girls and bad girls. Nice pair of jingle bobs. Thanks. They came to Chili Verde in search of treasure. Ah! Lust in the dust. I slept like a log. Why not? You look like one. Return with us to the old west when men were men and women ravaged the land. Give it. Anyone like to try again? Lust in the dust, rated R. I can tell you that when I was a kid, about 14 or 15, I didn't get divine. I don't think a 14 or 15 year old uh, Jewish kid from the suburbs of Philadelphia is necessarily going to get divine. As an adult, I absolutely adore divine. My first exposure to divine was pink flamingos and that'll traumatize anybody. So, and it's a real rite of passage. I think for film fans, there are certain movies that you are different on the other side of them. And so for a long time, I associated divine with one thing, which was shock. I really wish more directors had given Divine a chance because she was awesome on screen. She 100% understood the genres she was playing, not only with Waters, but with whoever used her. So I think ultimately Paul Bartel, who directed this film, does not make it a joke. It is simply a choice. His choice is Divine's playing this role. Now, go. And they never wink at you. They never nod at you. Nobody's looking at her and then looking at the camera like, did you see this? It's Divine. Divine's the star of the movie. And the idea that Divine's opposite in this love triangle is Lainey Kazan. Paul Bartel's not really working in anybody else's conventional idea of what a Western the looks like. The third part is Tab Hunter, a matinee idol early in his career, at that point closeted, came out later. He is great in this. 
I don't think the movie's entirely great, but I'm of mixed mind because I'm I'm with you. The cast rules. I think everybody's on fire in this movie. I just think the movie's very good. I'll give Tab Hunter this. He is so good with Divine, and the two of them, whether it's polyester or this, I think really were a dynamic for the ages screen duo who could have done riffs on almost any romantic subgenre and played it in a way that took it seriously, but also exploded it. It's weird. Paul Bartel, I think, was worried that this was going to turn into a John Waters movie because he started casting John Waters people. And it has its own vibe. I don't feel like he's doing Waters here. It definitely feels Waters adjacent, and that's not a bad thing. Paul Bartel had already established himself as a, you know, a cult filmmaker. So it's if he was uh, borrowing some seasoning and spice from John Waters, fine by me. I definitely think it's not shocking. It's not trying to be provocative in the way Waters was. It's just kind of sweet and funny in its own way. Now, talk about something that is the pinnacle of conventional. Drew, you might want to take over and talk about The Aviator. It was 1928, and America was about to produce a new kind of hero. They were tough. They were hungry. They were adventurers. Contact! They'd fly anything. But for a time, they were the greatest heroes of the age. This was the time for a new kind of hero. Christopher Reeve is The Aviator. With Rosanna Arquette, Jack Warden, Tyne Daly, The Aviator. Directed by George, not that one, Miller. Dude. Christopher Reeve, Rosanna Arquette. (sighs) Bicker, bicker, bicker. Plane crash, more bickering. Then Jack Warden shows up. Thank Christ, the end. It is such a ancient, creaky setup to begin with. Hey, you don't want anybody in your plane. Hey, she's a wise-ass, loudmouth, rich girl, but she's going to get on your plane, and maybe you're going to rub off on each other. Broads, I'll tell you, they're bad luck on airplanes. You're not oh, supposed Jesus to have the following Christ. things on an aerial plane. Broads, bats, or baseballs. What? It's a whiskery goofy silly movie the nature stuff when they crash and they have to survive on the mountain and they're not sure if anybody will ever find him because he was taking a shortcut and then there's wolves uh, it's all ridiculous and very badly played this is the snowy river george miller and he confused me profoundly in the 80s because i went to this expecting a movie by the guy who made the road warrior and it most assuredly was not. Well, I'll tell you a film that almost feels like it could be directed by George, the boring one Miller. And it's time for another episode of horse, horse, movie horse starring Drew McWeeny as he discusses Melissa Gilbert in the equine masterpiece, Sylvester. Yes, thank you very much. Tim Hunter, of course, we know Tim Hunter from Work on Tex, where uh, Matt Dillon appeared with horses. Uh, we are back again with horses, and there's competition of some sort, and it put me to sleep very, very quickly. There are a lot of horses, though, so if you're really just watching for the horses, prepare yourself. They are ridden, and they do many tricks, so uh, buckle up. It's exciting water. Uh, as a movie, though, Jesus Christ. All right, Richard Farnsworth. Yeah, I, I, Richard Farnsworth, fine. Uh, and I like Tim Hunter. Dude, I'm a big Tim Hunter fan. And his next film after this, which was just a year later, is a stone-cold classic, which makes it baffling that Sylvester is so dull. Uh, she's a young woman who wants to train horses for a jumping competition, and she's never seen one, so the odds are against her. Spoiler, she does it. J- and Jake Ryan plays the other cowboy. Michael Shapling. No, Jake Ryan. That's his name. 
<laughs> and yeah, I didn't know it was Tim Hunter until I put it on. And so for about five minutes, I was like, oh, yay, it's a Tim Hunter movie. I haven't seen. Oh, no. It's a weird, weird left turn in his career. You want to talk about a left turn? Andy Sidaris films. Meet Cody Abilene, a private eye with an adoring public. He's an undercover operator. Hi, I'm Ben. This is my friend, Faye. With a knack for getting at the bare facts. Yeah. This is the Countess, a government agent with her own special skills. And together, they're both headed for danger on the Malibu Express. How do you break down Andy Sidaris films to a person who doesn't know who Andy Sidaris is? He was a guy who figured out a formula for low-budget exploitation action films that involved Playboy Playmates and a winking, goofy, magnum P.I. tone. And here's the thing. Everybody looks at Andy Sidaris. I certainly did for a long time. I thought of Andy Sidaris. He must be this creepy dude. It's a family business. It's him and his wife making these movies. And she seems as delighted by the whole business as he is. They just figured out a formula. How is this any uh, different than Angel of Heat? It's that putting on a show in the barn energy. There's a lot of movies from this decade that are genuinely, I think, skeevy and gross and predatory. The Andy Sidaris films are fairly harmless for what they are. I don't disagree. But after this, there was Hard Ticket to Hawaii, Picasso Trigger and Savage Beach. Now, I know that Hard Ticket to Hawaii was the one that my friends and I all went crazy for. For some reason, Malibu Express wasn't the big one for us. Worth noting, as a footnote in film culture of the 1980s, Andy Sidaris definitely had a footprint on the HBO and Playboy channel. Oh, 100%. And they have the, the most ridiculous attempt at continuity where different people play like brothers and cousins of the same characters and people come back and and it's all just <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. You know what, Drew? Speaking of weird in a completely different way, a film that I had never seen up until a few weeks ago. It is so 80s, I almost shit a Rubik's Cube watching Baby, Secret of the Lost Legend. George and Susan are trying to protect her. Dr. Kiviat will do anything to capture her. And Mom just wants her back. Baby, Secret of the Lost Legend. I just said I find the Andy Sidaris films largely harmless and toothless. I think Baby is much weirder and grosser in, in ways. Yeah, it stars William Cat, a.k.a. the greatest American hero. Sean Young, a.k.a. the greatest replicant in the future. A bunch of bad special effects. They go into the jungle and they find a dinosaur, a baby dinosaur. Did you love Sheena, but do you wish it had more crappy dinosaurs? Well, guess what? There's a scene and there's a sex scene in this movie where the dinosaur keeps trying to climb on top of them that is so weirdly out of place in a Disney family film. This filmmaker, Bill L. Norton, had made a movie that I really love that is much maligned and largely relegated to the junk pile. It is the sequel to American Graffiti. I really like that film. I think there's some inventive filmmaking in it. I am baffled by the filmmaking here. Drew, we need to get to the bottom of this. Why in PG movies are we openly thrilled? to show topless women that aren't white. No, I think it was a cheap excuse to put boobs in movies. The basic litmus test is if they were white and they were the same age and it was this same scene, would it be in a Disney movie? And the answer is, are you crazy? It serves no purpose here aside from grounding it in a culture that doesn't exist. You say this is about the same or worse as what's done in The Bounty? I would say this is worse because this is bullshit. This tribe doesn't exist. These people don't exist. It is made up white person nonsense. And I'm baffled by the actual brontosaurs. And I've read about the making of them and about, you know, how, how much money they put into it. And they're 
awful. They're just lifeless and phony. And when Disney Plus promises that they're going to put every movie Disney has ever released on their service streaming the first day, and you'll be able to watch any Disney movie. Bullshit. Because I don't believe for a second that on day one, you're going to be able to stream Baby Secret of the Lost Legend. This is one of the first Touchstone releases. You could see that as Touchstone, they were trying to figure out, well, what does that mean? Do we have sex in this? Do we have violence in this? There's a lot of marital politics and sexual politics and the whining of the dino is so fucking annoying. Anyway, Drew, let's move on to the 11th largest grossing film of 1985. If great men graduate from the police academy every year, let's go. Then who are these guys? Give it to me. Now look, I'm serious. That's my... Oh, I'm sorry. Police Academy 2. Time to deploy for school. I'll go when I'm ready. Their first assignment. You're ready now, mister. Let's remind our listeners, what is the big difference, the sea change between one and two, Drew? Okay, so no Hugh Wilson and the directive was clearly make this PG-13 so that it can live forever. A big part of the reason the first film was a phenomenon was because of that audience that was just too young to see it, that heard that they should see it. And so it was a huge video hit. So, yeah, it was really shrewd of them to make the second one a PG-13. The writers they brought in for the second one, Barry Blaustein and David Sheffield, who are Eddie Murphy's favorite writers on SNL, and they were a major part of his rise on that show. They were brought in to kind of figure out what is a franchise version of this look like? This movie has like two laughs. okay? and for all these ostensibly funny characters on the screen, the only funny person in this movie is Art Metrano as the villain. It is a real test of what goodwill you have towards this cast. And you know what? There's a lot of low key racism in this movie surrounding the black characters. And it's just so shitty. The setup is somebody calls Lazard, asks for a favor. I need some new people for a precinct. And then he sends over the six graduates from the first movie. And then it's Howard Hessman basically is their foil in this film and uh, Colleen Camp. And again, man, you've got George Gaines, Colleen Camp, Tim Kazarensky, Rich Hall, Bob Goldthwaite. You've got all these new people that you're dropping in. And no, you know, I think the introduction to Bob Goldthwaite is only important because he's in so many of them. But I would not have guessed that watching this film, that that character would then become a major piece of this franchise moving forward. These are the laughs in the movie. I wrote down how many times I made audible mouth noises. There's a scene where Howard Hassman late in the film is being a stubborn asshole. And he's at a Japanese restaurant and he gets hit in the head with a piece of shrimp. And he says, you stupid bastard. That is funny. And then George Gaines has one funny line to Hassman. I don't even want to talk about it anymore. I don't like these movies and I feel like I should. I should like Police Academy sequels begrudgingly. And I don't. No, I don't either. And, you know, the thing about the uh, the PG-13 is I'm really, frankly, shocked that Nightmare on Elm Street didn't do it and that Friday the 13th didn't do it. Which brings me to my next point, Scott. Didn't we review a film here called Friday the 13th, The Final Chapter? Yeah! The mindless, murderous fury that was buried with Jason has been reborn. Friday the 13th, part 5, a new beginning, rated R. What? Someone's lied to us, Scott. Someone has lied to us terribly. You know what, Drew? And it's not like they said, Friday the 13th, part 4, Jason dies. They said literally, the final chapter. (laughs) But now, you've got a choice creatively. And the choice is, is Jason dead? And if so, what do we do? And I think there's a choice that they tried to make here which isn't a terrible choice, which is Tommy Jarvis is damaged now from what happened. Who is he? 
That's an okay sequel idea. I don't think this movie does that very well, though. By all logical arguments, he should be the killer. But you have the producers at Paramount who are like, well, we don't really know at this point if we want him to be the killer or not. So let's create this Scooby-Doo episode of a fucking sequel where the killer turns out to be a, spoiler, ambulance driver. Let's flash back. Let's go back to 1985, 86, 87. And your friends get to part five. What is the general consensus amongst Drew's movie posse about part five? Trash, just unmitigated trash. Why was this made? If you were in the neighborhood with horror geeks and you were like, part five is not that bad. By the next day, everyone would be laughing at you. They wouldn't, you would be out the group. And looking at it now, what I'm interested by is knowing that the backstory is they were wrestling behind the scenes with, do we double down and make Tommy Jarvis the psycho moving forward or not? They are so afraid of it here that they undercut any good idea they had or any good notion they might have had or any chance they had to build this series as an actual series of stories that escalated and that impacted one another. Aside from like maybe the most obnoxious hillbilly characters I've ever seen and greasers for some reason, I don't understand that. What what neighborhood is this? Hillbillies, greasers and halfway house. Where are we? Aside from that, It's got some pretty decent kills. And there's a lot of kills. There's like over 20 deaths in this movie, and it's super porny. There's a feeling like we don't have Jason, so we got to turn everything else up. I don't despise it like I did when I was younger. I think there's definitely worse ones later in the series. I would take this over part eight, and I would take this over Jason Goes to Hell without question. If it was not part of that series, it would be a pretty decent slasher knockoff on its own. I think its biggest problem is where it came out and when it came out. So, Drew, it's a new beginning, right? Which means Tommy's the killer next, right? Yep. I assume in two years we'll get Tommy Lives. I'll see you back here for that one. Cool, cool. So our next movie is a uh, film that I fell in love with in 1985. I never get tired of coming back to The Purple Rose of Cairo. You know, I still can't get over the fact that 24 hours ago I was in an Egyptian tomb. I didn't know any of you wonderful people. I got to speak to you. You mean me? Ah! Tom Dax just come down off the screen and he's running around New Jersey. How can he come off the screen? It's impossible. It's never happened before in history. In New Jersey, anything can happen. Come away with me to Cairo. Cairo? But you just met each other. Love at first sight doesn't only happen just in the movies. You coming from a costume party? No, I'm just back from Cairo where I uh, searched in vain for the legendary Purple Rose. How about that? Like Groundhog Day, I think it's a near-perfect fantasy. It, the fantasy hook is just enough to then let you do whatever else you're doing in the movie. It taps into not only uh, our obsession with movies, but the very cruel and bittersweet nature of movies, which is, hey, on one hand, a movie that you loved as a kid will always remain the same and you can always go back to it. And on the other hand, a movie never changes. It stays the same, although you change a whole hell of a lot. Mia Farrow stars in the film as a woman who escapes to the movies and escapes into the movies to the point where she knows them by heart. She goes and sees them over and over as they play, and she just internalizes films. And one day, because she's gone to this one particular film so many times, one of the characters on screen turns to look at her and says, I got to ask, what are you doing? And then steps out of the screen to meet her. And that's the hook of the movie. She really nails how we wrap ourselves in fantasy sometimes just to stay alive. Jeff Daniels as the hero, he's funny and he's sometimes oddly cruel because he's not human. I don't know if I like him more as Tom Baxter or if I like him more as Gil Shepard, the actor who plays Tom Baxter, who eventually also shows up. In my opinion, (laughs) there are three kinds of good Woody Allen films. There are funny ones. There are the insightful ones. And then there are the ones in which he does not appear. The Purple Rose of Cairo 
might be my favorite Woody Allen movie for precisely that reason. He will say some of these same things again. I think there's that whole sequence in Hannah and Her Sisters where he goes and he gets saved by Duck Soup and he, he sees Duck Soup and it makes him realize that life is okay. And that really reminds me of the ending of this movie where Cecilia is just watching Astaire and Rogers together. So much of this film is so smart about the difference between what we accept on the screen as reality and the way we allow behavior to exist on the screen versus how it would be if that was real life and stripping away those things that she's been using to stay alive to get to something that will actually help her move on with her life. That's the real hook of that film. And God, it, it works so well. It's such a smart script. And I love the way Gordon Willis's photography works in this movie. I think his 30s stuff is incredible. I think his movie stuff is fantastic. And I think the way the world gets broken the way the breach between them happens is really beautiful like with zelig he's using some really sophisticated effects work but he never overdoes it and he only uses it sparingly interesting note that uh, michael keaton almost played the jeff daniels role michael keaton would be i think a little too sharp for the uh the archaeologist character that's what's fun about him is he's a little innocent i michael keaton is many things i don't think of innocent as one of them and i uh, don't think that about uh, woody allen either so moving on let's now talk about a Comedic Karate Kid ripoff combined with about five energetic rock videos and you have the sloppy but imminently likable The Last Dragon. He's a champion who doesn't want to fight. He's such a hardcore Bruce Lee fan, he eats popcorn with chopsticks. He'll risk his life for a rock video queen, but he's afraid to talk to her. He's either totally weird or he's The Last Dragon. Sure look like a master to me. Barry Gordy's The Last Dragon, directed by Michael Schultz, rated PG-13. This is bizarre, start to finish, and as of my most recent screening, I think I'm on the love it side of it. I, I admire it, man. It really, it's like somebody said, let's take the Karate Kid and six or seven other things we like, shake it up in a mixer, and that's our movie. If you talk to guys who were in New York in the 70s and 80s, the affinity for Kung Fu cinema is very authentic and very much a part of New York 80s culture. The stuff at the beginning of this movie where they're in the grindhouse and they're seeing Bruce Lee movies, I think that's a great sort of snapshot of a moment. And there's a lot of guys who came out of that scene who fell in love with those movies because they were constantly being shown. It's about a young man. He runs afoul of a street gang run by a troublemaker called Show Nuff. And it all leads to all kinds of entanglements and embroilments and rescues and a woman who you, he thinks needs rescuing but actually doesn't. And there's a great dance battle at the end with Ernie Reyes Jr. kicking people in the face. I'm a big fan of Michael Schultz just as a guy who I think carved out a really interesting path through a weird moment in film. To be a black filmmaker who had a, such a mainstream sensibility and mainstream voice – but also a resolutely black point of view in the mid to late 70s. He was the perfect person to make car wash. I get where he was going. And then he hit Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band like a brick wall. And I think after that, it was hard for him to get his footing back. And we've already covered Carbon Copy, which, oof. So this to me feels like this weird collection of ticks and fetishes where they got Michael Schultz on board and they had all these things they wanted to do. And Barry Gordy wanted to make a star out of vanity. And somehow Schultz took all of those pressures and made this shambling, charming, funny, weird, goofy thing that worked. I really like the Eldebarge song that everybody knows. Yep. I, that is a unironically catchy, fun song. When I hear that specific song, I think of this VHS cover 
and I very distinctly feel like I'm 14 again. I do love, though, that Vanity, who is, I think, the star, and Barry Gordy was clearly trying to make her a multimedia star at the time, when she comes out and sings for the first time in the movie, it is awful. It's like she takes a dump on stage. It is <laughs> awful. She's charming with the kid, but oh my God, every scene where she has to sing, the music is excruciating. I, I like it. I, I think it's an odd little flag planted in, in early 85. His little brother gives a great performance. I think his little brother, when he's giving him sex advice, is crazy. He's funny, kid. And I'm telling you, I rewound Ernie Ray is kicking the thugs in the face. I rewound that like four times. I love it. I'm going to talk real, real briefly about uh, Chris Marnie, who plays Eddie Arcadian, and his girlfriend, played by Faith Prince. I would have pulled back on that. Okay. They give it a thousand percent, though. They're over the top, man. I think what they're trying to do is kind of a Miss Tessmacher, uh, Lex Luthor vibe. Yeah, but the writing ain't there. They're I, not I, as gifted, and it's not written as well, clearly. I just think less would have been more with them. That's all. Sure. Uh, you know what else less would have been more on, Drew? Holy oh, don't, don't even. How the fuck? How do you have Neil Simon and Hal Ashby as unlikable and limp as the slugger's wife? When you're as married to your career as Debbie and Daryl, the last thing you do is say, I do. From Neil Simon comes a comedy for everyone married to a career, as well as each other. The Slugger's Wife, rated PG-13. Cocaine is a hell of a drug. Yeah. And I don't know who phoned it in more here. I don't know who's more in the weeds. I don't know if it's Ashby or if it's Simon, because for Ashby... Holy God. Imagine if Wes Anderson directed a really boring Hallmark Channel movie. Ashby was an editor first, and Ashby had that great sense of timing in his movies. Even the shambling movies of his, like The Last Detail or Being There, they shamble in overall form. But within each scene, they are precise, and they are so carefully built. And I think Ashby had an amazing ear. I don't recognize human beings in The Slugger's Wife. Like, nobody in this movie acts the way human beings would. They are insufferably awful people. You're telling me, Drew, that you're not interested in the fractious romantic relationship between a hugely successful baseball player and a hugely successful rock star? Is she really? Because the... Here's one of my major points of contention with this movie. Rebecca DeMorne plays his girlfriend and eventual wife. She is constantly in this movie fighting for her own career, a career which seems to consist of playing in shitty generic clubs and singing covers of other people's music. Her Prince cover in this movie is special. And Drew, we've talked a lot about O'Keefe and how like we like him in supporting roles. There's nothing there. Well, and he's a dick in this movie. He's a baby who needs his mommy to hold his hand. I like when you italicize words. He's a yeah, I- baby. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to assume that this was being rewritten constantly while it was shooting and that that nobody ever read this whole thing start to finish because it it doesn't work as even this is the author of the goodbye girl, for God's sake. I don't want to I don't want to move on. Neil Simon, uh, cinematically speaking, will redeem himself. Slugger's wife might be the worst thing to have his name on it ever. Let us now move on to a an indie comedy that came out of nowhere and turned out to be a smash hit because of the presence of one lady named Madonna. Every man is desperate to have her. Madonna is Susan. Rosanna Arquette is Roberta. I'm not Susan. I'm a housewife, and I live in Fort Bean, New Jersey. How Roberta gets to play Susan, and Susan gets to play around. Want to play? 
is the story of desperately seeking Susan. Come on, rated PG-13. It got the attention because of Madonna. The reason the film actually connected is because Susan Settleman made a really charming, sneaky Yeah, yeah, no, here. it's a good movie, but you know as well as I do, a, a smart, low-key indie comedy about two women, yeah, is not necessarily going to make money. The fact that Madonna is in it, I think, helped put asses in the seats. Yeah. It's the equivalent of having Eddie Murphy in 48 Hours. I think it is a very smart Prince and the Pauper. That's what it is. It's Prince and the Pauper. It's a social media movie before there was social media. It's about that idea that you're looking at someone else's life and you're thinking, oh, that must be amazing. And in this case, it's Rosanna Arquette is a housewife who's constantly reading the personal column and there's this sort of running back and forth between susan and her boyfriend that goes on in the column and so she's got this whole fantasy life built out about what they're like and when she gets bumped on the head and she ends up falling into susan's life and susan takes the opportunity because she's in trouble to step into hers yeah it's a great screwball setup it's also i think a really smart um, observational piece about what it is that we think other people are like versus what they really are it's definitely arquette's movie she uses Madonna as this force of nature that kind of passes through the movie and impacts Rosanna Arquette. And it's great because Madonna's a fucking brat in the film and she's perfect. She is a breath of fresh air in this movie. She doesn't give a false note. She's great in this. I think this is super calculated. She makes it feel effortless. That's the real trick of Madonna is she built this character and this movie helped her sell it. And I think we all really believed this was Madonna. It's just a lot of fun. It's not a movie that I should have or would have appreciated at 14, but I think it's a, a blast. I love that it's low-key and never explodes into overt wackiness. It threatens to, but it never really gets broad. The woman who wrote this in 1985 never wrote anything else until in 2006, credited on Basic Instinct 2. How do you not get more work after that? That is depressing to me. Scott, you know who probably shouldn't have worked for a while after our next film? Uh, I want to say Bruce Beresford, but I think your answer is Richard Gere, because boy, does he shake his ass in the whacked out biblical epic King David. Behind the legend of King David, his battles and his triumphs was the man. His passions. I've seen you once before. I thought I'm mad. And his fears. Absalom is a traitor who must be... Absalom is my son! Your love blinds you, my friend. King David, rated PG-13. What is this, Drew? This is a disaster. Yo, 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 listen up. This was not an era that wanted biblical epics, man. Who pitched this? Whose idea was it to do this movie and to say, okay, this is the time period we're going to cover. Richard Gere is our choice for David. It's almost like they've taken all the dramatic moments and they're handled off screen. So anything that's on screen is the begats. This is a film adaptation of just the begats part of the Bible. It feels like Richard Gere wanted to play a giant biblical hero, used his considerable clout at the time to get it made. It is laughable. I, I just I can't even figure out based on when it begins and ends what they're saying about David. They didn't figure out what they're saying. So it's just and then David did some other shit and then David did this shit and then David's over here and did this shit. I would have gotten a fucking segue between King David and our next film. <laughs> King David was almost certainly playing at the same multiplex as Rob Reiner's second feature film. She's a model student. It's all intellectual stuff. He's not. You're flanking English. That's your mother tongue. It's stuff. She's a gourmet. Only if you trust me to say He's not. She's well, anyone? She's well-groomed. He's not. If opposites attract, 
These two are a sure thing. Did it hurt you? No. Rob Reiner's ah! The Sure Thing, rated PG-13. Coming off Spinal Tap and obviously being a veteran a writer and actor on television, Rob Reiner knows funny. Did you have any concerns sitting down with The Sure Thing that you were going to get cringy, cringy stuff? No, I did this one about a year ago with the boys. I think that people get the impression that in some way I want to scrub the 80s of, you know, the very real libido that is part of the the 80s filmmaking. And not at all. I like the premise of this movie because I do think it's based on the idea of this fantasy you have in your head of a no frills, no strings attached thing versus a real person. You nailed the key to this movie. Occasionally, the film cuts to Nicolette Sheridan as, as she is credited, the sure thing. But these are all fantasies in the Cusack character's head. They don't cut to scenes of her being rotten. No, and the person he finally meets is a real person and is interesting and not at all the person that he's interested in. I think early Rob Reiner is right there neck and neck with early Ron Howard. They're both really good with actors. They were both really good at putting together these low-key, charming casts. And I think they understood that it's ABC storytelling. You just put it together, let these people carry you through it. And I think Cusack, more than a lot of these young actors, Cusack figured himself out pretty early. And when he got that sense of who he was on film, uh, he's unshakable. His confidence in this movie is terrific. And I think Zuniga is great opposite him. He's the rock. He's the thing that doesn't change. And Zuniga is the one that is constantly pushing and reacting and they get all the little stuff right. So they earn it. It's the great balance between if she comes across as too bitchy, she might lose a lot of the viewers for good. But she never does. She's never just an asshole. He's a catastrophe. It's a miracle she doesn't kill him in his sleep occasionally. Rob Reiner's confidence as a filmmaker, when he got these opportunities, he knew what he was doing, man. Uh, I really like the short thing and I'm glad that it holds up. So there we go. You know what film I was a little nervous about rewatching and uh, holds up way better than I remembered, Scott? Rusty Dennis never listened to the facts. For academic excellence. She listened to her heart. Bobby Dennis. Together, they built a life full of pride and love. Mask. Sincere is the key word here. And it's one of Bogdanovich's best pieces of work. He nails this family just right. God damn, do I love Cher and Eric Stoltz together in this Sam film. Sam Elliott. Oh, God, I want to hug the whole three of them. Anna Hamilton Phelan wrote the screenplay, and her script is fantastic. I love the way she treats the biker gang that is Rocky Dennis's support system. I love that Rusty Dennis uh, Cher is a disaster, start to finish. She never gets better. She's not reliable. She's a real person. The movie doesn't go out of its way to sand all those rough edges off. Richard Dysart is great, Laura Dern. Estelle Getty, Drew. Oh. I'm a big fan of, and I've met this guy a few times when I first moved to L.A., character actor named Dennis Berkeley. He plays Dozer in this, who is the giant semi-mute biker who is constantly like, sneaking puppies in for Rocky and stuff. It's one of my very favorite things he ever did because they let him be a little kid in this giant hulking biker body, and it's really charming. Zoltan Elek, who did the uh, makeup here, he does remarkable work because Eric Stoltz is able to emote clearly through it. It did win an Oscar for Best Makeup. Everything you need as an actor, all the little delicate stuff you need to really sell a performance, he has access to. Is this the job he got right off of leaving Back to the Future? Yes, and this is why I always knew he would survive and be around in our industry, because by the time we heard the stories about Back to the Future, this was in theaters. Eric is so good in this. After a while, you really believe it's him. 
you not only understand why people would get past it the longer they were around him, but you have trouble seeing it after a while. The Laura Dern stuff, she plays the blind girl he meets at camp who he ends up falling in love with. She's awesome in this. There was a big fight to try and get the uh, Bruce Springsteen music into the film. He lost the battle for theaters. It is in the version that is on DVD now, and I think it works. I think it's nice. I don't think it made the difference Bogdanovich thought it made, but I get why he really fought for wanting it put back because it was Rocky Dennis's favorite artist. And he wanted the guy who the real Rocky was inspired by to be the voice of that film. So it's nice that the version that's out now, that's the version of the movie now. Drew, we're going to close on a film that is equally beautiful for very different reasons. Quit your job. Quit my job. I did. You do it. They're going to cash in. We liquidate everything. Drop out. To America. There we go. And get lost in America. They want to discover exotic places. I think if Liberace got children, this would be their room. Experience gourmet dining. Melted cheese. Oh, boy. (laughs) And make new friends. Lost in America. Rated R. I love this movie. This is, I get crazy about this movie. It's one of those that I get excited when I get to introduce it to somebody. A white man in America goes into his job expecting a big promotion and instead gets fired, decides to make a real life Easy Rider sequel, I guess, and he buys a Winnebago, forces his wife to quit her job, and they go on the road with, what, approximately (laughs) $190,000, almost all of which she promptly loses in a casino and then they have to uh, scramble to figure out how they're going to live the rest of their lives with a Winnebago and virtually no money. Albert Brooks is hilarious. Julie Haggerty is, I mean... A genius. Uh, Julie Haggerty in this movie is a... It's a different kind of funny, but how is it that she is funnier in this than she is in Airplane? She breaks. Like, this person has never felt what she's feeling and has transformed overnight. And his reactions are terrific. The whole scene he has with Gary Marshall where he tries to get the casino to give the money back is amazing. Let's pull back further than the characters. Okay. What, what, What does the movie say about the cyclical nature of society that forces people to choose A or B. I think what you're talking about is the point of the satire, which is that there is this idea that we can either drop out and go live that life or that we have to be on the treadmill. And I think these people are trapped in both of those. And I think the the film is about the idea that one of them is a dead end. The other one is not what you think it is. And that in both cases, he's chasing a carrot that somebody else has set up. There was a point, especially in the 80s, where this consumer culture was starting to become more rabid. And it was the ex-hippies who were buying into things now and becoming the yuppies. And I think Brooks saw that coming down Broadway. So you could call this movie the guilt of the former hippie. Look at how he uses Easy Rider. The cop's going to give him a ticket until he says, do you know Easy Rider? And he's like, I based my life on that. It goes to the idea that everybody took what they wanted from hippie culture and then went into the next decade buying into the system in their own ways. This guy idolized Easy Rider and he saw that as so I should become a cop so I can be on a motorcycle every day. Albert Brooks had it in the back of his head as so one day I'm going to drop out. and I'm going to go live in a Winnebago and I'm not going to answer to the man anymore. And they're all chasing this kind of crazy hippie myth that never really existed. The Summer of Love was 15 minutes in one city. And yet we've bought it as this cultural thing that consumed our country. That's kind of nonsense. Well, Drew, we'll get to more uh, Albert Brooks films that I absolutely love and then love not quite as much. 
I want to take just a quick moment to thank every single listener, every single patron. If you want to get double the episodes, go to 80sallover.com slash Patreon. If not, you could uh, hop up on Twitter and say, hey, everyone, check out 80s All Over. You could leave us a review on iTunes or your preferred podcast platform. Thank you. There's no getting around it. Things get weird next month. We're going to a hellhole. We're taking a prime risk and we'll be breaking all the rules and racking up moving violations. Girls just want to have fun, especially if they're just one of the guys, because that helps when you're in the company of wolves. Jam a stick in a cat's eye, Lady Hawk, and join us back here in two weeks to figure out what the hell I'm talking about for April of 1985. <laughs> Thank you.